Well, some questions are being asked about the future of Stanley Park Drive, given how it is right now during this COVID-19 pandemic. Some questioning, should it reopen to traffic? And others saying, well, wait a minute, since it's been shut down, we have been unable to access the park, which has been a very important part of our lives. Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is John Cooper. He is a Park Board Commissioner. And thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, we heard in that newscast, uh, Trisha Barker, one of your colleagues on Park Board, she's hearing from seniors. Uh, we heard from seniors when it was announced that the park drive in Stanley Park would be closed to, to traffic to give more room to cyclists and to pedestrians. Uh, people saying they were very upset that that's somewhere they like to drive and, and take in all the beauty of it. Uh, what are your thoughts on these concerns about it perhaps not being reopened to traffic? Yeah, I think that the, you know, the... The reason it was done was social distancing, and I, I supported that, and I've, I've walked myself through the park since the cyclists have been moved, to, moved to the roadway, and I think it's been quite as successful in this particular situation. Um, I think what we're hearing, we're hearing, you know, people that are advocating perhaps for this to be permanent, and, and you know, you have to realize that Stanley Park is a large, really a destination park, and uh, it's really entrusted to the park board by the federal government. And it's, you know, one of our thousand acre park. There's a lot of things in Stanley Park that uh, people maybe don't think about uh, right off. And one of the one of the one of the most important things is the parking in the in the park actually gives us the revenue to actually look after the park. That that's a big um, it's a big revenue generator, as well as uh, we have a lot of restaurants in the park. We have um, the aquarium in the park. And so we've got a lot of partners that we work with, including the tourism sector, who, uh, you know, we have buses uh, going through the park with uh, hop-on, hop-off buses and things like that. So there's a lot of people that get the advantage of using the park because there is a roadway system within the park. And are you hearing this call to keep it closed to traffic? Uh, I know we've been hearing from some cycling groups and cyclists that are saying this is great, it should stay this way. Um, are you hearing this elsewhere from any of your fellow colleagues on Park Board or anywhere else? Uh, well, we haven't, we haven't met um, uh, recently, so I haven't had a chance to really talk to the other commissioners, uh, apart from uh, Commissioner Barker, who uh, were the same party, the NPA, and we're both really um, wanting to make sure that this park remains accessible to everybody, and that includes cyclists. I mean, we've always had cyclist access uh, on the seawall, and this was really a temporary change. I don't think there's a, a reason to change what was working really quite well, where you know seniors have access to the park, uh, you know, tourists have access to the park, and, and patrons of the various restaurants and facilities, including the aquarium. Um, and get access through uh, often through driving to the park. Uh, and, and it really is uh, different types of cyclists as well. For anybody that has rode their bike through the park or been a pedestrian or a motorist, if you're on the seawall, I mean, unless it had changed, uh, last time I was there, which was some time ago, uh, on the seawall itself, there's a, a pedestrian path, there's a cycle path, but the hardcore cyclists, the ones that are that are out there and cycle for hours and it's, and it's uh, something that they really do, they were already cycling on the road, weren't they? Yes, they were, and and there, we've never had a problem with that. That's that's worked uh, uh, reasonably well. We just wanted to create, and I think that you know the general manager made this call to create some more space for social distancing within the park, and I think the, it's worked very very well in the present situation. And people aren't traveling as much. You know, we've been asked to 
try and stay home as much as possible, but we want people to get out and get uh, exercise. So I think it's been it's been uh, quite effective. But I'm hoping that we get back to a point where, uh, you know, people can can get down into the park and enjoy the park. And the other thing is, you know, we have the big um, the firefighters charity bright nights every year at, at Christmas, which is extremely uh, well attended, and certainly uh, a lot of the people that enjoy that. Um, find a way to that uh, event by a, by a motor vehicle. So, uh, as well as other ways, uh, you know, they can walk in or they can bike in as well. And we did hear from seniors, and your colleague Trisha Barker talked about this as well. And they were quite upset when this news came. And I think people understand that that had this this not happened, there is in there's no way to distance on that seawall if you put all of the cyclists and pedestrians on that seawall, especially at some of the choke points. It would be absolutely impossible. So the other right. choice might have been to shut that down completely. Uh, but for the seniors that said, "Look, we love driving around this park. We have mobility issues, or this is just a, even if we go and park for for an hour and sit." in the car it's it might be the only way for some people to get some nice fresh air and to to experience this beautiful park well that's exactly right and, and commissioner barker uh, works with seniors so she could she has some great insight and i always learn from her and she's very passionate about it but um her whole uh, thing that she does is really getting seniors active and um you know she does that through physical training and various things like that she works with a lot of seniors and, and mobility issues so she really knows this stuff and um, I listen to her carefully when she raises these concerns, and I and I hope that the other commissioners uh, do as well, because this park is really the reason the park board started back in 1888 was it's our job to keep parks open and accessible to everybody, and I think uh, we, we our staff do a tremendous job. They've done a tremendous job. Uh, the uh, park champions, our park rangers, our park staff generally have done a really good job. I think in educating people around social distancing, the signage all around the seawall, all around, all around our parks. You know, I'm really proud of the work that they do and they take it seriously and uh, it's great to see. Um, so what do, what does, does the park board then have to wait for a directive from the, the medical health officer, from Dr. Henry or from the city as far as if, there, if it does change back to traffic being allowed? And, and I suppose not just at Stanley Park, but also looking at some of the other changes, uh, the parking lots at Spanish Banks, for example, that have been closed down. What needs to happen for those things to reopen? So those, those were decisions, those were operational decisions made by the Park Board General Manager and his staff. Um, there was no particular health order uh, to do that, those things, um, but the, and out of an abundance of caution, uh, the Park Board wanted to make sure they were doing everything they could to keep people safe. And certainly in those pinch points around the seawall when you have a high, high traffic, it would be virtually impossible to do that without making a move such as what was done. And the same was to close some parking lots to try and, you know, get people to understand that this was not necessarily the time to be gathering in groups in, in these public spaces. And I think it's been quite effective. And as we're seeing, um, you know, taking the advice of the medical health officers, I'm, I'm really pleased with the, what's happened in British Columbia. I think we can all proud be proud of the fact that people have listened and are working together on this. So, uh, you know, I think we're going to slowly see some changes with things coming back. Like we've just opened uh, golf at two of our courses and opening uh, Van Dusen Garden back up with some social distancing. So I think uh, the park board is taking quite a leadership role to, to try and keep people safe. And I support that fully.
And as far as other parks, you make the point, have there been complaints? Or I know in the beginning we were seeing bylaws, officers, so, I mean, it was 1,400 warnings quite quick, quite right out of the gate. That number then was a bit higher. I don't know if you have the answer to this, but do you know if people are still getting warnings for this? Or are you hearing that people are getting the message and in these public spaces they are distancing? Yeah, I'm, I'm witnessing people are, and we have this other program called Park Champions, which has been our some of our recreational staff that generally work in our community centers that are closed. They've been out, um, you know, with these uh, reminders. Sometimes they've had the pool noodles or they've had hula hoops, and they've been encouraging people to to uh, to distance. And I think uh, people are getting it, and um, you know, I think we, we're we're seeing quite good results in, in 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 Vancouver and in the province. And I think. Uh, we should we should all be be proud because it's hard to do. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm feeling a little cabin fever myself, and um, you know because uh, people like to be around other people. That's what we like to do, and we like especially to recreate in parks and our centers and that. So, at some point in the future, when things start to come back, we'll certainly uh, look forward to that. But first, let's take a look at a couple of arrests that were made in Surrey. You might have heard this in the news. RCMP saying two people were arrested after police recovered about $33,000 worth of government-issued checks that were stolen from several places throughout the Lower Mainland. The Mounties in Surrey say the checks include Canada Emergency Response Benefits checks, so checks just mailed out as part of the relief efforts during this pandemic. They were recovered by the RCMP's COVID-19 compliance and enforcement team. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Eleanor Sturko, the Surrey RCMP Media Relations Officer. Thank you so much for being with us today, Corporal. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be able to speak with you. Uh, we know that, uh, or we were told that these checks, which include the CERB checks that were taken from several places, do we know where they were taken from? Well, we've been reaching out with different um, agencies, uh, Coquitlam RCMP, some other police agencies, just tracking down where they might have all come from, whether they originated from um, mail thefts from mailboxes or whether uh, the person came into possession of them through break and enter or whether they were actually a third party getting them. So our investigation is continuing. One of the things that we do do, though, in, in situations like this is we work closely with the other agencies who are impacted, like Canada Post and in this case, we've been talking with the Canada Revenue Agency so that we can make sure that we're notifying the people whose checks um, were stolen and that working to make sure that those people are able to get the benefit that they were waiting for as quickly as possible. And can you talk at all about uh, the RCMP's COVID-19 compliance enforcement team? So is that RCMP members from different jurisdictions? No, our COVID uh, compliance and enforcement team is Surrey RCMP officers and also a mixture of bylaw officers from the city of Surrey. So it's just regular members of the Surrey RCMP who may have come from other units that, um, you know, they were diverted from things like, for example, we had a lot of officers that were involved with our school resource program. They might have been youth officers. And as the schools were um, shut because of COVID-19 concerns, then we shifted those officers to areas where we had an increased demand. So, for example, doing things like joining our COVID compliance and enforcement team, uh, doing an increased amount of business uh, patrols. So one of the things that um, I guess we don't really talk about much is 
we're doing outreach and education, but first and foremost, our police officers are investigators and they've got their eye looking out for suspicious activity and crime, which is what led them to make this seizure. And, and interesting the way it all uh, kind of played out is uh, it followed the search of a vehicle. And I understand there was a short chase that took place as well. Can you talk at all about how the arrests were made? Yeah, so they actually originally had been out on patrol, like going from business to business and looking out for large groups of people doing the things that were normally a part of the COVID compliance enforcement team activity. And on their patrols out in the cars, they actually made sight of some suspicious vehicles. What they had noted on three separate vehicles were, were things like a fake license plate, uh, two fake temporary operating permits. Those are those like um, temporary sort of licenses that are on paper that you sometimes see when people are maybe transferring a vehicle and that type of thing. So they were able to investigate that back to um, a property, all those vehicles associated to one property in Cloverdale. And then on April 25th, they went to intercept one of the vehicles. And, you know, they wanted to make sure that they could investigate this bully. So they tried to pull over one of the vehicles and that vehicle drove into the backyard of that residence trying to evade police. The driver fled on foot and they were able to arrest the female passenger as she exited the vehicle without any incident. And they did get the driver, a man in his 30s, a short distance later after a foot chase. And do you anticipate or have charges been recommended? Well, we haven't um, laid any charges yet. One of the things to consider, um, this the male suspect is remanded to custody. Uh, the female was released on an appearance notice. And now we actually have a significant amount of work that still has to be done and information that will go forward to the Crown. It's a lot of seized exhibits. It's not only the the checks themselves, but there was also um, fake identification, um, different pieces of stolen property and, and documents. So there's actually quite a bit of now this was the sort of exciting part, and now the not-so-exciting part of going through all that evidence and writing up reports is what's going to take place. And then uh, we should have an idea whether or not the charges will be laid in hopefully not too long of a time. Uh, have you noticed, uh, w- even with the, the COVID-19 team or with other officers uh, that are on patrol, uh, it seems like we are seeing an increase or an uptick in attacks on people, in, in stress, in, in high-tension situations. Uh, we know there's been an arrest uh, of uh, the man who was the suspect suspect in the video that was released yesterday by Metro Vancouver Police uh, for that assault on SkyTrain. Have your officers noticed an uptick in in cases like that? Well, fortunately for us, um, where we've primarily seen uh, an, an upswing is in property crime. And although that still affects people, it's not a person's crime where we're seeing people get hurt. It's mostly property that's been targeted for us. Um, and, you know, a lot of it also has to do with probably we're different from other locations because of the way that Surrey is set up. Um, we have a lot of residential areas and business areas. Um, but what we've mostly noted is an increase in the amount of business break and enters in areas where we don't have as many uh, businesses open or where foot traffic is no longer as busy because of, you know, things being shuttered. So um, we do see a shift differences in the way that certain crimes may be taking place and they, and they may be impacted by um, things like the public health orders and the way that people are living their lives. But um, fortunately for us, we actually haven't seen um, the same types of, of different activity that's happening. And it's mostly for us been people taking advantage of um, circumstances to do with property crime as a result of public health orders. Right, with, with build, uh, businesses being boarded up or I guess a crime of opportunity if people know there's nobody inside. 
Yeah, and you know, even with these checks, when you when you think about it, um, things like GST checks are going to be coming at a certain time of year. Things like tax returns coming at a certain time of year. Now we have the um, Canadian emergency benefits coming all at a similar time. So uh, we all know this because we watch the news, but also sometimes criminals know this because they watch the news too, and they may be looking to take advantage um, of that information and of that knowledge, looking to strike at mailboxes, looking to, um, you know, steal mail, steal property at times when they know it will be lucrative for them. So I really encourage everybody, make sure you're checking your mail on a regular basis. In particular, if you're waiting for, um, let's say, a replacement credit card, some type of identification to be mailed to you or a check of any kind, make sure that you're picking up your mail. And if there's a you know circumstance where you're not able to do so, maybe if you can get a trusted person to pick that up for you, then make sure and keep it nice and safe. And just curious too, one more question, because we are uh, supposed to be distancing and keeping that physical distance uh, must be difficult for officers. You can't very well arrest somebody while still keeping two meters between you. How are the frontline officers doing? They're doing very well. And, you know, um, this is one of those times where, you know, when you become a police officer, you want to be there when the times when the public needs you. And right now we're needed. Um, It's an extraordinary time for a lot of different industries, not just, you know, public safety industry, but the grocers and, you know, uh, people who are truckers, everyone. We're all just doing the best that we can. And it's actually been quite extraordinary and great and rewarding to see actually how really well people are doing under the circumstances. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Let's talk a little bit more now about concerns about people already trying to find ways to defraud the new CERB system. And Kevin Milligan joins me now. He is with the UBC Vancouver School of Economics. Thank you so much for being with us today. Happy to join you. Uh, I know you've been tweeting about this as well. What are you seeing or what concerns do you have at this point? It's such a new system, but with the people trying to defraud it. Well, I think people should not defraud things. When you apply for CERB, you have to click uh, an attestation box that declares that you have read the uh, instructions and that you are eligible, and acknowledging that if you are not eligible, the Canada Revenue Agency will and should come back after you later on. And I think when people click that attestation box, they should do so honestly. Uh, and th- there are certain rules when it comes to applying for this uh, for if you're also getting the wage subsidy. Uh, is it because do you think it was rolled out so quickly and had to be to respond to the pandemic that uh, it's not to say that it, that you can't figure out what you're eligible for and what you what you're not. Uh, but are people just quickly trying to figure out to where they can get the money and, and as much money as they can? Yeah, Jill, that's exactly the trade-off that the policy designers had in mind here. When you apply for, you know, employment insurance benefits, normally you have to provide your record of employment from your employer. You have to provide a bunch of information. It takes a few weeks to process, and then you get your EI check. In this emergency, they didn't want to have those standard checks and balances that they would do with employment insurance. Instead, they set up this you know, the employment or the emergency relief benefit website, uh, people got the money within days. They only had to click a couple of boxes in order to uh, attest to their eligibility. And the trade-off there is that the government put a lot of trust in Canadians to uh, click those boxes and, and, and apply for the benefit in a way that was uh, honest and sustainable. And importantly, though, this wasn't just a, you know, we're hoping people are going to do the right thing model. This was a trust but verify model. upfront. You can click the box and attest, but then the CRA does have the power and the ability to come at people who do so dishonestly.
And you've been tweeting about this as, as well, that on May 8th, we'll get a better idea on what's going on. What will we get as far as numbers on May 8th to look at and compare? Yeah, what we know right now is about 7.2 million Canadians are on the emergency relief benefit. What we will see when the labor force survey comes out next week is how many Canadians are uh, out of work or have stopped working, kept their job you know, on furlough, stopped working right now. We will get a, a sense of how big that number is relative to the 7.2 million that are on CERB, the relief benefit. My strong suspicion is you're going to see numbers that are you know, well into the 6 million, closer to 7 million range of, of people who have either lost their job or kept their job but are you know, on zero hours or low hours. That's, but that's what we can do. We can compare those numbers when we see the labor force survey next week with the 7 million that we know are on the relief benefit, and that will get a sense of you know, uh, the differences there and that perhaps there may have been a few who uh, didn't attest properly when they click the boxes, um, but we'll be able to judge that when we see those numbers from the labor force survey. Uh, is there also a chance, or or is this happening with the wage subsidy? In that I, I've been seeing as well, some people putting the scenario out there that that people who are furloughed may be still getting the seventy five percent wage subsidy, but nothing is stopping them from them going to work somewhere else. Whether you're working under the table for somebody or you're working somewhere else and getting a salary or getting paid there, uh, are you concerned that there could be a level of fraud? or dishonesty there as well? So with the uh, wage subsidy that is now, you know, uh, taking applications from from employers, uh, there is some uh, risk there that people who have already received the the, uh, relief benefit will also start receiving back pay or something through their firm, uh, through the wage subsidy. And that's something that, you know, uh, you're not supposed to be doing. You should be collecting one or the other. And, you know, when we get to, Later in 2020 and tax time 2021, the CRA will be looking at that closely. In terms of other ways of people working under the table or whatever, those risks are always there in our system that there's lots of ways you can do illegal things without being caught up front, but you take a risk of being audited in the future. What I really hope is that the trust in Canadians of doing the right thing during especially this emergency time when so many families are relying on these benefits, that we don't want to put those benefits at risk by uh, seeing um, you know, people being dishonest. So I really hope that people understand that uh, you know, these benefits are there, they have helped millions of Canadian families, and that we want to make sure that those dollars go to those who need it. Right, exactly. They're there for a reason. They're there to exactly what you said, to help people. But unfortunately, there's always uh, somebody trying to game the system. Uh, there's also been talk of the, the student money, and I think it was changed when they talked about it in virtual parliament, but the idea that originally for the student funding, that $9 billion package, that students wouldn't have to show that they were actively looking for work. I think they do now, but there's also some question there on what that actually looks like during a pandemic. Yeah, um, my understanding uh, of the legislation that was passed in uh, the House of Commons yesterday will be hitting the Senate, I think, tomorrow, um, is that uh, there's a similar kind of attestation box where you click and you declare that you have uh, in some way looked for a job or checked out the student uh, summer employment boards. Um, And, you know, uh, in the same way, it's a, a, a trust model that we 
I uh, hope students do that uh, before they click on the box, and I hope uh, everyone is honest when they do so. I think they should look. Importantly, though, in that box, there is no requirement that you actually got a job or, or, or because, as you mentioned, a lot of students are simply not going to be able to find a, a job this summer, which is the reason this benefit is in place. Just think of the tourism sector or the hospitality sector. That's where a lot of students make some money is working as a bartender or, or, or a waiter over the, over the summer. Um, a lot of those jobs are going to be a bit slower this summer and harder to find. So, um, you know, that's the reason why this benefit exists. I, I think it is a good idea to have students, uh, you know, look for a job if it's available. But I'm glad we do have this backup for students who can't. Uh, would it have been easier then if the government just cut everybody a check and then worked it out after? Yeah, that's certainly a model you could do. Um, the challenge there is that even though, you know, 7 million people on the relief benefit sounds like a lot, there are still 23 million other Canadian adults, because there's 30 million adults in Canada, there's 23 million other Canadian adults who didn't get the CERB. And so if you were to cut a check to everyone in Canada, you would then multiply the cost that we're seeing by a factor of about four. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the federal government is poised to, to ban a variety of guns, often referred to as assault-style rifles, including the type of weapon that was used in the Montreal massacre in 1989. It was a promise during the fall election campaign, and we are now hearing that the government is going to use an order in council within the next few days, possibly even tomorrow, to ban these weapons. It's getting a lot of reaction, and coming up this half hour, we are going to take your calls on this. But first, let's check in with Rod Geltaka. He is the CEO and Executive Director of the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights, and he joins me on the line now. Rod, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, Not a huge surprise, as we'd heard musings about this for quite some time, but what is your reaction to hearing that the order in council could be made as early as tomorrow? Well, the the order in council as a tool to ban property uh, from from people that lawfully own it is uh, it's it's not a great way to go. In fact, one of the largest, well, the largest e petition uh, in Canadian history, which was E two three four one, was was launched to let the the Liberals know that uh, that it's incredibly undemocratic to use order in councils, and that that received one hundred and seventy five thousand signatures uh, from Canadians, but it doesn't seem to make a difference. What do you? What is your reaction as well to the the types of guns that uh, we're being told? And these are uh, reports that started coming out uh, within the last twenty four hours. Uh, the Ruger Mini fourteen, the AR fifteen uh, guns that have been used in very high profile shootings. Will this make a difference? Do you think when it comes to shootings and mass shootings in general? It absolutely not. The whole thing is absurd, and gun control is entirely political. And I'll give you a great example. I mean, the Parliament Hill shooter. Um, ran all over downtown Ottawa, should be the most secure city in the country, shooting people, including a 200-meter dash across the lawn uh, at Parliament, right into center block, through all the security, all the way to the library, which is in the back of the building, with a lever-action rifle. So if any government that wants to take public safety seriously um, should show Canadians that. I mean, the, the, the idea that some guns are somehow more lethal than others is, is ridiculous. They're only, and they've only hand-picked a few out. Only the ones that are involved in shootings when when equivalent firearms are, are safely used, you know, every day in Canada, regardless, it's 
it's, it's really disappointing. It's just, again, all optics, all politics. Uh, and I was curious your reaction as well, because we did just have the shooting in Nova Scotia. Uh, the difference in how police responded to that, if we look back to the summer when we unfortunately had three murders in B.C., they were so quick to come out and not only say what type of weapon was used, uh, gave us the store where the shooter in that case purchased the weapon, compared to the Nova Scotia shooting where uh, the reporter who asked about that was told uh, that uh, they weren't showing any patience and they were being disrespectful. Uh, what's your response to how they've responded to these two very different shootings? Well, I think the Nova Scotia shooting was, is very complex. And that, 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 that rampage has nothing to do with gun control. Um, nine of the victims were burned in house fires. Uh, this individual um, you know, was driving around an RCMP cruiser with an actually authentic RCMP uniform. And that's what enabled him to, to, to commit the carnage that he did. This has nothing to do with guns. Now, when it comes to evidence, um, the RCMP, as much as, uh, as much as I don't want to give them too much uh, leeway, but, I mean, you have, to, you have to leave it in their hands at least for some time for them to sort out all of the different crime scenes and figure out what's, uh, what information may or may not jeopardize the investigation. So, um, dare I say, I think you need to trust them for a little while, let them get their work done. If they never told us, then maybe that's a problem. Uh, but certainly there's a reason they're not telling us about those things. And, and I hope that it's not purely political. Uh, in uh, the news coming out today, uh, we're also being told that owners of uh, firearms that were legally purchased that might now fall under this ban, uh, they'll be offered fair, fair market prices through a federal buyback program. Uh, to me, that screams legal challenges and it being mired in the courts. What does that say to you? Well, it's uh, talk is is free. It's not even cheap. It's free. And the liberals can talk about buybacks all they want. They haven't taken any steps to, to create a buyback. And if I were to, to venture a guess, basically what they're doing is they'll come out with this OIC if they actually do. I'm hoping that they don't. Um, and if they ban, uh, you know, 11 types of firearms, they'll just do that and say, well, that people can, can remain in possession of them until they come up with a scheme to buy them back or the money to do so. Um, and that's, and that essentially just freezes that property. No one can use their property. They can't go shoot it recreationally or for sport or for hunting. Some of those guns are used for hunting. And, uh, and it'll cost the liberals nothing, but they're hoping to make political hay. And again, the most disappointing part is their leveraging of, of, of these, these tragedies and their manipulation of Canadians to think that uh, licensed gun owners that lawfully uh, have this property and, and maintain a license are somehow a disproportionate risk to public safety. Um, that's, that's what's the most disappointing. So I don't know what their plans are, only they do. But, you know, it's, it's nothing to help public safety, to be sure. Are you concerned as well that the order in council could also lead to one of the promises that they made in the election campaign, and that was to give municipalities and cities the power to ban handguns? Well, again, and I think we spoke about that back at the time. I mean, <laughs> The way that our, our, our system of government, our three levels of government works, that's going to be one tricky piece of legislation that they'll have to craft. I mean, they, they, they crafted uh, Bill C-71, which was a gun bill, and it's, it's, it's really a terrible piece of legislation. They still haven't been able to implement it, but somehow they think that, uh, that they're going to be able to do these things easily. Um, municipalities don't have, the, don't have the authority to ban certain property. So I, I don't know how that's going to work again. With the Liberals, it's always politics, it's always optics, it's always emotions. 
it's never about the real the real problem. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know how they're going to achieve that. Do you think anything needs to be changed as far as gun laws in Canada or checks or anything uh, that that keeps that 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 we have as far as gun checks and the, and the current system? Well, the current system is extremely extensive. The what you have to go through to get a license, to maintain a license, to store your firearms. I mean, just not having a, a, the proper lock on your gun is a criminal offense with, with, that comes with jail time and, and fines. Five thousand dollars first offense, by the way. Um, the, the the gun control regime in Canada is incredibly strict, and that is the probably the biggest myth and misnomer um, that's circulating around the public is that we have no red flag laws or we have no. You don't have to show a license to buy a firearm. It's absolutely untrue and easily verified, easily debunked. Um, if you want to work on crime, there's a lot of things you can do. And, and you know, I think, I think your listeners should carefully consider what would billions of dollars that you would spend on a buyback to only buy guns back from licensed gun owners, not from criminals. They don't, they don't sell their guns to the government. What else could you do with that money? How, how, how much could you make Canada a better place with that kind of funding? And that's what we've been saying all along. All right, Rod, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Always good to talk to you. Anytime. Thanks.